0: Sure we have no dying here. Sure we've had 209 people resurrected from the dead that have been carried in here with bow movement, even cake on their legs. We've had their eyes set and they've been blue. Sure we can do that, but I tell you that's not what's most wonderful. I'm looking over faces that were once dead in their trespasses of the old religions. They were dead under the old doctrines of fear, dead under the old concepts of the furniture of heaven and the temperature of hell. They were dead, and now their mental concepts, their mind has been resurrected. That's the greatest resurrection of all. Their mind has been liberated. Their mind has been set free. They now think. They now know the truth.
1: What happens when people who are starving for better life for themselves and their communities are left on the fringes of society? What happens when they are backed into a corner, left behind by their government, with nothing to protect them from those who might crown their vulnerability? These are the questions we'd like to ask you today as you join
2: us in our podcast, What Could Be Done? An Exploration of the Government's Role in the People's Temple. The People's Temple began as a small storefront congregation with a focus on social justice and taking action for its congregants. It ended in the jungles of Guyana with 918 people dead. I'm Han. And
1: I'm Imani. With us today are several scholars who will be joining us in our discussion today as we break down the course of the People's Temple. In order to preserve the integrity of the events, we'll be following a partly chronological and partly geographical breakdown, starting with the beginning of the movement in Indiana with our expert, Autumn following the movement to California with our expert, Lila, and finishing in Jonestown, Guyana, with our expert, Finn, before we shift into our final discussions.
2: Hi, Adam. Thanks so much for being here.
3: Hello. Thanks for having me today. I'd like to start out with a lovely quote from Mr. Fielding McKee, who's a journalist that works on Remembrance website with his wife, Rebecca Moore. They run a website where they've compiled all the information from and about the People's Temple. Nice. And he says on the website that I felt for a long time that some of the most interesting people to track were those who joined in Indianapolis when it was a religion, before it became a social and welfare organization, and then a roller coaster with no breaks. I found this quote really interesting and would like to keep this theme throughout my section of the you know this podcast so as previous episodes have mentioned Jim Jones was nothing even in the realm of a normal kid from having an odd home life with weird a small town and then moved to Indianapolis to try to get that like racial um, like diversity so throughout his time specifically in Indianapolis he was very much involved in just having a church with a focus on social justice rather than what it later became, like we know. So he started his time working as a student pastor during this time, and subsequently after he dropped out of college, too. So a little down the line, he decided he was not going to be a part of this church that he was doing the student pastoring for, because they wouldn't allow black people into the congregation, and that was very much not what he was about. So, he, after he dropped out of college, he sold pet monkeys door-to-door. What? Yeah, so that was kind of weird, but the money he got from that helped him pay for his own Pentecostal-style church, which was named Wings of Deliverance, which is interesting. But then it was renamed Community Unity, which more fit with his ideas. And this was Indianapolis's first biracial church. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah. So during this time, he was also doing these, like, tent revival meetings, which he just brought a whole bunch of people in a tent and did miraculous healings.
2: Makes you wonder how he had time for all of it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And these healings certainly attracted people. So his church community unity began growing and growing and growing, and people of color started attending, soon becoming majority black women elderly women at that too. Which you can, this definitely echoes later down the line. So he began his letter writing initiative during these years and it fostered trust and legitimacy on his behalf. Um, Some of the previous podcasts have mentioned that in the series. It did and it didn't at the same time. So while he was writing the letters to judges, he was writing them to landlords, which have ties to the government for the righteous, but it did neglect the problems encountered during this life. And that really attracted people because their needs aren't being met, and he was helping them while also providing this spiritual aspect that they were looking for. So this was incredibly monumental because it was just churches weren't doing that then. He was doing that, people loved it, and his congregation grew to over a thousand of some of them. And at some of the tent revivals. And in conjunction with this growing congregation, Jim Jones ached for more. He wanted a place for a soup kitchen, a clothing bank, services to aid poor and needy people, and that's really when he founded the People's Temple, because he needed a bigger space, and that's really what they had to be. So, He founded it with with a mission to promote racial equality and social activism. And in this new church, he continued to mix healings, scripture readings, and socialist ideas within his sermons. So this is at the point where it really became not as much of a church as it was a social movement. Wow. Yeah, it seems like he was
1: providing a lot of community services for people.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And... At Community Unity, he was still providing those services, but that's why he needed to move to another building, and he named it the People's Temple, with no apostrophe, mind you, for a place for everybody.
2: Wow, it's easy to see why someone would want to be involved with this. It sounds pretty appealing.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and people were. It definitely
1: sounds like Jim Jones was picking up a certain slack that maybe the government wasn't providing for people.
3: Yeah, I feel like that's an overarching theme in, specifically Indianapolis, but also later down the line, too, Absolutely. as I'm sure we'll see through the other scholars. Correlation to the government came a few years after his founding of the People's Church, the People's Temple, I mean, um, in 1961. He was appointed by the current mayor to the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission. Impressive. Yeah. Not really, <laughs> because... Jones was the only one to interview for this position and the only one to apply. Wow. So they really didn't have a big pool. <laughs> but since he was the only one, he got it pretty easily. And the committee for hiring him had seen in the newspaper that he was a pastor, a pastor with social you know, social justice motives. And he did so much for the rights of poor and black people Which is great, but they didn't learn about the healings he had done, which they knew to be phony, of course, and they didn't do a background check on him, which, nowadays, for any job, you'd have a background check. So would that have stopped him from being in this position? I'm not one to say. I don't think it would have, but I don't know. This appointment catapulted him and his ministry to a whole new level, and I'm going to tell you why. So now he had access to these large forums for his views on the radio and the television and in public appearances and capitalized on the highly newsworthy topic of race relations. So after less than two months on the job, the mayor and some commissioners ordered Jones to slow down in his journalistic efforts to promote his ministry. They didn't feel like that aligned with the Constitution and their ideas seemed like with
1: this position he was given access to such a broad way to reach out to people that he didn't have before and it seems like he was really capitalizing and taking advantage of that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, personally, I think if it hadn't been for this position, things might not have grown to what they would have been. Grown to move to California, but that's all speculation. This plays a very vital role in the governmental relations that he'll have down the line to just, like, have that background in the government and have the background in a position such as that. So, he was in this role until about 1962, where he left for Brazil. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. It is. Like, the top eight safest places for a nuclear fallout. And Brazil was in that list, and so he moved his family there because he thought he was in danger of this. And I to me I feel like that would have been a red flag, um, being in this position, at least nowadays, but with the current like stuff going on in the country, I feel like people thought of it a little differently than we do now.
0: So this is all very
3: odd, but the the question comes down to, does any of this warrant government intervening? And I don't think so. I think Jim Jones in the People's Temple's time in Indiana was that of just spiritual and of a traditional church until it became a church that helped people, a church that cared about them during this life and in the afterlife. So i- i don't think the government could have intervened here, and i think if they had, nothing would have been different
2: okay. thank you thank you so much for your time
3: no problem thanks for
0: having me i said i had to give people a little bit of truth they've seen too many miracles and they're all up in seventh heaven and they're saying all oh, what jesus is doing through him what jesus is doing through him nobody does a thing through me honey it's me that does it
2: we're here with Lila, who is going to talk to us about the People's Temple in California. Hi, thank you so much for having me.
4: Thanks for being here. Okay, so there's two main parts of the People's Temple California quote-unquote experience, I would say. So the first part is Ukiah, which I'm going to cover briefly because there wasn't a whole lot of points of government interaction. And then there's San Francisco, which I'm going to go into for a bit more detail. Mm -hmm. So we'll start in Ukiah. The reason uh, Jim Jones moved the People's Temple to Ukiah was because he read in an article in a magazine that Ukiah was one of the top eight places that could shelter you from nuclear war. And he was really worried about a nuclear apocalypse of some kind. So they moved to Ukiah. Ukiah is in Northern California, by the way. It's Thank very you. like hilly, lots of beautiful landscapes, lots of fields, open, very Sounds open wonderful. place. It's beautiful. They lived on a compound all together in the church. People worked for the church on the land they harvested their own crops they raised their own animals they had their own shelter there that they built for themselves it was basically a small jonestown like test run in a way to see if they could kind of live off of their own infrastructure their own land grow their own food etc and that was when people started giving a lot of money to the temple because they had a lot of organizations that cost for donations which ended up going towards the temple and its projects people would promote the people's temple like at their jobs or at their schools or to friends of family and they would get money that way and then people started putting up their homes because they were moving on to the compound so they started getting a little more money intake that way seems like a little bit of a red flag (laughs) yeah i would personally agree with that jones had a lot of weight in not exactly with the local government but definitely with the local newspapers uh they were starting to post stories about him But he got some of his higher ranked members, if they heard that the stories were negative in any way, um, they would get People's Temple members to go and convince them not to write those stories and write something good about them instead. So there was lots of like only good news and good stories about the People's Temple, which I think some people found suspicious, but not enough that anyone really got involved from like the government or some sort of larger investigation.
2: That's kind of interesting, because normally when you think about quote unquote cults, I mean, we've discussed that it's usually bad press.
4: Yeah, that's true. So this, they were still on the smaller side at this point. I believe it was around two to 300 people, if I'm remembering correctly. It was not drawing the kind of attention it did when it got bigger. Sure. There was nothing going on that called for any kind of government intervention. They were kind of just doing their own thing, living their own way. They had some organizations. They had some charities. They had an old folks home. They had pretty sort of some sort of like daycare education thing. People would give their salaries to Jones and make money through the temple. And basically all the money went back into keeping those organizations alive. The main thing that People's Temple or Jones wanted to advocate for was that if you live with us, if you are with us, you will have everything taken care of that you need. You will have food, you will have water, you will have shelter, you will have education, you will have healthcare. basically anything that you need to survive. If you give us your money, you will have it because of us, which is kind of a way of entrapment. I think looking back on it, but people were down and out on their luck. So it makes sense to me why people would find that appealing.
2: Yeah, you don't have much to lose anyway.
4: Why not go for it? So I'm going to move on to San Francisco because, like I said, there's not much more to talk about, Ukiah. So they finally made the move to San Francisco because Jones was kind of power hungry and knew that San Francisco was a really culturally diverse city at the time. Still bogged with racism and so in San Francisco, they attracted a lot more people because it's a more of a hub location. There were a lot more different kinds of people there, all different kinds of people from all different religions, all different backgrounds came to San Francisco and came to the People's Temple. Now in San Francisco, there was a lot more interaction with the government. Jim Jones was became very popular among the liberal government body of San Francisco. He was close to Governor George Moscone was governor from 1976 to 1978. It was rumored that the People's Temple were the ones who really helped get George Moscone elected because a lot of People's Temple members voted for George Moscone and picketed and advocated for him. So it's kind of assumed that the People's Temple had a hand in like getting him elected. So there wasn't any corruption that we're aware of, um, at least that I researched about, but they definitely advocated very strongly for him and got a lot of people to vote for him and were very public about how the, how much they loved him.
2: Wow. So I guess when I was first diving into the government topic, I was wondering how the government affected the temple, but it's really interesting to see how the temple affected the government.
4: Yeah, that's really true. And, and San Francisco is a great example of this. So George Moscone definitely had more liberal views. He won against the Republican candidate who's was kind of representing old San Francisco narratives, like wanting to keep the rich rich and things along those lines. As an advocate for change, he really wanted to make the city more diverse and the government more diverse. Wow. And had a lot of more modern views than a lot of his opponents and fellow government leaders. He was actually the one who elected board supervisor Harvey Milk, who's known for being the first gay man, openly gay man to ever serve on the board of supervisors in San Francisco.
2: Yeah, that sounds like someone that even
4: today people
2: can get behind.
4: Yeah, definitely. I think George Moscone would be very popular today. Unfortunately, he died too soon. But he was very interested in their views and their advocacy for socialism and more liberal viewpoints. He said that they were doing great work for the city, making strides to make everything more diverse and more open to everybody. And he really appreciated their contribution to the city. He wrote a letter to the president at the time jimmy carter about the people's temple when they were under investigation while in guyana he wrote a letter advocating for the temple and for jones which we were fortunate enough to have a narration
5: of dear president carter i am the supervisor for district five of the city of san francisco the people's temple christian church is not located in my district so i have no political ties or obligations to this church I am writing to call an urgent concern of theirs to your attention. I am concerned at what I understand is the endorsement of some of our congressmen for the efforts of Timothy Stone against Reverend Jim Jones and the People's Temple. There are some facts I feel you should be informed of. Reverend Jones is widely known in the minority communities here and elsewhere as a man of the highest character, who has undertaken constructive remedies for social problems which have been amazing in their scope of effectiveness. He is also highly regarded amongst church, labor, and civic leaders of a wide range of political persuasions. Our own Board of Supervisors has presented Reverend Jones with a certificate of honor, unanimously passed by all members, praising the church for its many projects, which have been so beneficial to all citizens of the Bay Area. On the same occasion, he was also presented with a unanimously passed resolution by a Republican state senator, Milton Marks representing that legislative body. Timothy and Grace Stone, the parties that are attempting to damage Reverend Jones's reputation and seriously disrupt the life of his son, John, have both already been discredited in the news media here. The most widely read columnist in the area, Herb Kane, printed Mr. Stone's sworn testimony that John is not his child, but rather Reverend Jones's. Grace Stone is reported involved in what could be considered a blackmail attempt against another leader in the minority community, Dennis Banks, reported in the two major dailies with her name also given in Mr. Banks' sworn affidavit about the attempt. It is outrageous that Timothy Stone could even think of flaunting the situation in front of our congressmen with apparently bold-faced lies. I have learned, in addition, that he has pressured these congressmen towards unwitting compliance with promoting State Department intervention in the custody case now pending in Guyana. Not only is the life of a child at stake, who presently has loving parents in Reverend and Mrs. Jones, but our official relations with Guyana could stand to be jeopardized, to be potentially the great embarrassment of our State Department. Mr. President, the actions of Mr. Stone need to be brought to a halt. It is offensive to most in the San Francisco community and all of those who know Reverend Jones to see this kind of an outrage taking place. Respectfully, Harvey Milk.
4: What I find interesting about the letter to President Carter is that Harvey Milk seems almost outraged that the People's Temple would be under this kind of investigation because he says that Jones is such a good Reverend and has done many things to the community, and in Milk's opinion, has done nothing wrong. And he basically calls Mr. and Mrs. Stone liars and said that Grace Stone was part of a blackmail scheme and basically was fed a one-sided story from Jones about the whole event. Jones is very good at persuading people and convincing people of his own agenda, basically feeding them what they want to hear and basically telling them that he could do no wrong. He is always the victim.
2: That seems to be kind of a running theme throughout all of the facets of this movement.
4: Definitely. The fact that Milk was persuaded enough to write to President Jimmy Carter is really fascinating because that really, to me, shows how deep-seated Jones was in the San Francisco government. Jones was eventually elected by Moscone to um, the Housing Commission, which is basically involved in the regulation of public housing in the city. He was not his first choice which he was kind of disappointed about. He wanted a position of authority within the government, and that was the one Moscone offered him. Yeah, and you know, two government jobs in two different cities in a pretty short span, like time span, is impressive. Very impressive. So he kind of wormed his way in there and kind of got, pretty much brought up the People's Temple at any opportunity and tried to get his higher-ups jobs. I'm pretty sure some of his higher-ups did get jobs within the government in some respect. But eventually that kind of petered out. I don't know what benefits he got per se from being on the housing commission, but he got his influence in there, which I think is all he cared about. He really enjoyed being the center of attention and getting his voice heard. Yeah.
2: It wasn't about the specific points of the job. It was about saying that you were in some position of power somewhere in the
4: government. Yes, for sure. So I mentioned the New West article. So this was an article published by New West magazine that covered some of the downsides of the People's Temple from people who had defected. Hmm. So finally, someone is writing something negative about him because although he didn't have as much influence in the San Francisco newspaper as the Ukiah newspapers, there was still mostly good news and no one wanted to pick up something bad about the People's Temple. It was like keeping the status quo. So this New West article came out and Jones basically freaked. He had already had started a Guyana settlement, the Guyana settlement, and basically once that article came out like a day or so later basically just up and left and said that everyone who could should come with him because the government was going to come after them.
2: So, at no point in California did the government actually come after them though?
4: Not that I know of. No they were definitely aware of them and i think they had more of an eye on them than ever before because they were on a larger scale but still they didn't really know of any of the bad things going on
2: all right thank you so
4: much okay thanks so much for having me i took a muslim brother
2: in here and i
0: honored him i said i'm so glad he said i worship allah but he said i know you are the incarnation of god made flesh i said i'm glad for my muslims here we got a lot of muslims in this church and, I'm, and this people say, well, I don't know. I thought this was a Christian church, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know that the most of the leadership is Jewish and Muslim? I don't know. You thought you're Christian. That's all right. What you Christian. you like, you like Christianity. All right. King James, that bu- book you love so much. King James. And you go back and get my interpretation.
2: Hi, Finn.
6: Hi. Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks
6: for being here. So, Guyana. Guyana's kind of interesting because that's the, I guess, the most noticeable turn the temple had taken, uh, especially on the kind of the outside perspectives. And the first kind of interaction the government would have with the temple after the move, or the first time it would kind of come up on their radar, was this custody battle for a child of two temple members. Now, these temple members were named the Stones, and they had had this kid named John Victor when the temple was still in America. They had both decided to leave the temple, but before doing that, they had kind of surrendered custody to a temple member who would later take John Victor to Guyana when the temple moved.
3: Weren't there uh,
2: also rumors that Jones was actually John Victor's father?
6: Yes, yes. Jones was great at starting rumors and spreading rumors and leaving uh, a lot of uh, uncertainty in procedures around the temple and stuff like that so how true that is I don't know if we can really say but there were definitely rumors of that Uh, and I'm sure many of the temple members believe that especially those who were in Guyana at the time. So this American lawyer for the couple whose name is Jeff Haas tries to serve summons twice in Jonestown um, to Jim Jones alleging that the parents have true custody of the child. Um, The first time he comes he's told that Jones is not in Jonestown, the second time representatives of the People Temple, People's Temple uh, reacted very aggressively to his visit. Um, they threw his papers back at him and accused him of living in the area with quote-unquote garbage and trash. So obviously a very hostile environment to anyone trying to take away who they see as kind of their communal child. And then Jones's failure to appear in Guyanese court or send any representation to the court led to the court attempting to gain custody of John itself. He, they put out a warrant for uh, Jim Jones' arrest if he didn't give you know, a reason as to why he wasn't able to show up or shouldn't be held in contempt of court. And then eventually, the guidance government is forced to deny the motion to, for, by the parents to gain custody of John Victor uh, due to his mother, Greystone, uh, never officially revoking custody from the Temple member, uh, anyone who might be trying to stop him.
1: You can definitely see where that sort of move... Shifts the boundaries that he was able to make, and kind of creates a lot of more red tape for the governments.
6: Yeah, absolutely, and like by putting that element of you know disputed jurisdiction, you know these are American citizens in uh, foreign territory, which you know either forces the governments to kind of open that dialogue with each other as to who gets to police them or you know investigate them uh, or kind of anything like that. It's just adding more layers and, yeah, red tape. A few times that he wanted to move there so the temple could be, like, more fully independent and so they could be kind of left alone. Being left alone is definitely, uh, I think, in many cases, code for just being outside of, like, easy jurisdiction.
2: Also kind of <coughs> seems like it served to give people a common enemy in the government.
6: Definitely, definitely, and that's uh, a strategy he's used the entire time, it kind of, the othering of anyone outside the movement, even if it's family or friends, or in John Victor's case, you know, your own parents kind of isolating people within the temple and saying that, you know, all we have is each other. Definitely binds them together, but also really, really cuts them off from uh, outside influences. And then there are um, multiple visits by the American consulate to Jonestown, where everything is recorded as fine, you know, At this point it was really just sort of an agricultural commune and there wasn't much any government could do about that. You know, they're not technically hurting anyone, they're not committing any crimes, so... Uh, Everything was reported as fine during those consul visits and we're kind of uh, left alone by the uh, American government there. Now, from the Guyanese government's point of view, They actually, like, promoted the Jonestown settlement being there, but definitely didn't fight it hard because where Jonestown was located was between their border with Venezuela, um, which they were in a little bit of conflict with at the time, and the Guyanese government was certainly aware that this chunk of hundreds of American citizens between them and their enemy uh, would make Venezuela much less likely to attack them via that route because... Even though these individuals aren't super fond of the of their own government, attacking hundreds of American citizens like that would definitely lead to a lot of trouble for a small country like Venezuela. So they didn't fight their settlement there super hard and may not have, you know, thoroughly done a background check on that um, the people's temple either.
2: Again with the background checks? Wow.
6: Exactly, exactly. Um, there's a lot of open doors and a lot of, like Autumn mentioned, kind of a lack of accountability that might be present if this had happened in a more modern uh, time.
1: It seems as well that the Chinese government benefited in some ways of them being there, so it seemed like maybe there could have been a sort of willing turning of a blind eye.
6: Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's always difficult to tell in, like, official capacities like this because it's a lot of, like, plausible deniability and stuff like that, but, you know, from my perspective, it's definitely uh, str- strategically beneficial to have um, that group there, and, you know, I'm guessing there was some sort of analysis on the Guyanese government's side of, you know, does, the, does any potential harm by this group being there outpay the benefit of having uh, this buffer between us and Venezuela. So, the next uh, sort of interaction of the government with People's Temple in Guyana um, is this Interpol investigation. So there's an investigation uh, that they were doing from February to August of 1977 due to concerns about arms smuggling by the People's Temple. And so they posted lookouts at ports in Miami, Houston, and New Orleans, which were the ports that the People's Temple was using to uh, send and receive supplies. And they were inspecting those uh, shipments for any signs of potential arms smuggling. Nothing uh, really actionable was found on that, and they weren't really able to investigate further, but that is definitely an interaction the government had with uh, the People's Temple, and interestingly, we know that the People's Temple did have a significant amount of weapons after the massacre occurred.
2: You say they were right to be concerned?
6: Yeah, no, exactly, Um, and, you know, whether they received those from the U.S. and somehow bypassed like the Interpol lookouts, or whether they got it in Guyana somewhere uh, from some other country, we can't really say, but they were definitely right to be concerned. But the biggest interaction, uh, and kind of the most interesting one to look back on, was Representative Leo Ryan's visit to Jonestown on behalf of the U.S. government. Now this group, uh, called the Concerned Relatives, made up of friends and family, of, had put a lot of pressure on... The government and on their representatives specifically to intervene. They said they were concerned about their friends and family that they felt had been taken uh, sort of against their will or brainwashed into coming into Jonestown, and they wanted some sort of investigation and, you know, hopefully figure out a way to free those people they felt they had been taken uh, against their will. And Leo Ryan was kind of known at this point in time for being a very uh, hands-on representative, you know, he had, uh, he liked to kind of travel to areas where uh, problems were occurring, take his uh, congressional delegation and kind of get his feet on the ground and figure out if there was any merit to kind of these accusations. So he said, okay, we're going to put like a trip together to Jonestown. And then he flew there in November, on November 14th, 1978. So obviously only a few days before that massacre did occur. And he took several members of the press, he took a few members of his own staff, um, and then he also took members of the Concerned Relatives Organization who had family members still in Jonestown. And then, unfortunately, four days later, on November 18th, uh, again the day of the massacre, he was attacked with several members of his entourage, NBC correspondent Don Harris, NBC Soundman Bob Brown, newspaper photographer Greg Robinson, and temple defector Patty Parks, they were attacked at the Port Kaituma airstrip on November 18th. And that was after the... And it was temple members that attacked them. So that is the... That's really what brought this event and this organization onto the radar. Many people uh, in America. Many ordinary Americans and then also lawmakers. And there was a... Fact-finding report requested by the House Committee on Foreign Affairs, uh, specifically looking into um, the circumstances surrounding Leo Ryan's death and the death of other members of this group, but then also aggregating different communications between Ryan and U.S. officials, both in the U.S. and Guyana, and then officials in Guyana uh, talking to the temple, uh, temple leaders including Jones, and then uh, other various communications relevant to their investigation and it focused on the events leading up to the attack and how that caused it. this was really what brought the massacre uh, into the mainstream and probably, this i would say, the single greatest uh, event or the event that had the single greatest effect of bringing it to the attention of the american government.
2: wow, oh, that was heavy. yeah. thank you for sharing.
0: So you belong to a christian church? yes, i belong to a christian church and i told him i've got muslims on my board. I belong to a Christian church and they saw a whole breakfast full of Muslims, Jewish and they had to take them. And I said, if you want me to say that Jesus Christ is the one we're going to look to in the past. No, Jesus Christ said that these things shall you do and greater. We're not going to look to the past. We're going to have our own liberation today. We're going to have our Messiah today. We're going to have our deliverance today. Today is our day of salvation. We're back with Finn. And so we're
2: going to do a little shift in topic. We're going to discuss the modern perspective on Jonestown and the evolution
6: of that. I think one of the biggest uh, issues with understanding the Jonestown massacre, especially today, is that it's often hard for people, um, especially in these later generations, to kind of imagine themselves in this situation or this era. And we've seen that this often leads to a lack of empathy or sort of a mental and rhetorical distancing of oneself from the victims telling yourself that i would never go along with that and you know there must be something different about
2: did you feel that way well yes
6: definitely initially i did especially from the uh the ways that i'd interacted with it and you know my main knowledge was just the phrase drink the kool-aid and Mm -hmm. i kind of knew it as like a bunch of crazy people went off into the jungle and decided to commit suicide which obviously we've seen through the show is not the whole story at all. But that's, I think, super common. And I think it gets more and more difficult to place yourself in that situation the more time uh, separates you from that catastrophe. I think it's helpful to kind of think about similar movements that we might have today. Um, And I think-
2: Elaborate. (laughs) Yeah,
6: I think there have been uh, several similar movements uh, since the People's Temple. but uh, one that might be particularly relevant today um, would be the QAnon conspiracy theory movement obviously this is something that everyone today is pretty keenly aware of. It's very present in the... So like,
2: where do you think the comparison is there?
6: I think if People's Temple had emerged today, it might look something like QAnon, if only on its face and not, you know, in its actual political ideology. But QAnon is also politically motivated, like the People's Temple was, albeit by pretty much the other end of the political spectrum. Sort of which leaders are God's chosen leaders and kind of this divine uh, intervention that will bring political change that the members of QAnon think is necessary. Much like People's Temple was blended with religion. People's Temple has kind of emerged uh, later in the movement, but with QAnon, that's a pretty strong theme throughout it. And that's a lot of its primary purpose is just agitating for uh, political, very, very extreme uh, political change. There's talk of revolution. QAnon also has similar discourse going on, and sort of this idea that there's going to be this new world and members have kind of a moral or social obligation to be a part of it, uh, and that they feel kind of driven to be a part of that and help bring about this better world that they see. They're called movements by some people. They're called cults by other people. Their legitimacy and extremity is disputed by people, and it's kind of tough to pin down exactly uh, what to call them a lot of the time. Their members are also very similar, right? These are people joining at points of uh, turmoil in their life. They're often people who kind of feel like they don't have a direction and either People's Temple or uh, QAnon comes into their life at a time where they feel like uh, they lack connection or direction in their life and kind of becomes that direction for them and that turns into um, a stronger devotion to the movement. They're often looking for personal support or a sense of belonging. research on QAnon is telling us that a lot of these people uh, felt isolated, particularly uh, during the pandemic, and kind of found their uh, social interaction uh, and personal support kind of mixed in with all of the uh, political and religious and all the other discourse within QAnon, and that community kind of becomes their, the people they're closest to in their uh, life close family and friends of people that do join both movements kind of describe, like, quote-unquote, losing people to the movement, and they feel like they've kind of what that person was before.
2: Yeah, kind of like, you don't really think about the similarities often, but it makes sense that even though ideologically they're different, mentally and emotionally they're very Mm -hmm. similar.
6: Definitely, yeah. I think it's important for people to remember that because I think it's easy to think of people's temple as something that happened you know, several decades ago and kind of compartmentalize it like that.
2: Sort of an it could never happen here Yeah, exactly. process.
6: Exactly. Just looking at these kind of through lines and these tenets that are very uh, similar through both movements, we can see that the patterns haven't really changed. You know, yes, they've changed in name and there might be other more surface level or more cosmetic differences between them, but the root of the problem is still there. And I think... If people try to put themselves in that position and think of you know the effect this has on public consciousness and the immediacy of the problem as opposed to thinking about people's temple as a just a historic thing i think it helps us understand it much better and kind of appreciate ex- its significance more
0: all right thank you so much if you don't like the truth you never will get these healings We've got a miracle package, and we save that miracle package. We save that resurrection package for those folks that like Black liberation.
1: There's a familiar expression that we've heard plenty of times over the course of these few months that I take personal merit in. No one joins a cult. The horrific events that took place in Jonestown were a breaking point in the pressure that had built under a community of people that were desperate for love and change. No one wanted to be manipulated, abused, or forced into submitting themselves in the name of God, but it's clear that people had basic needs that were not met. They struggled for social change. They pushed for equal rights. They needed protection and care, and they needed their needs met. And because they had been left without anywhere else to turn, they were left vulnerable. As we reflect on the life of the people's temple, it is our responsibility to think critically and honestly to think of where it went wrong and what we could and should have done differently. It is our responsibility to listen to the past and learn from its events. And it's the lessons we learn from the events surrounding the People's Temple that will help us protect anyone from the same damage and harm. We can incentivize programs meant to raise awareness on how to recognize abuse and trauma, how to safely remove yourself or others from it, and how to recover after it. We can destigmatize reaching out for help and offering help to others. We can create safe community spaces to ensure that everyone feels that they have a stable support system. We can put pressure on our governments and make demands that inequalities and injustices be properly corrected. While we will always be able to look back in hindsight, we can only ask, what if? And while we cannot know if potential preventative measures would have protected the 900 lives at Jonestown 43 years ago, we have to make an effort to create a safer world for our tomorrow.
2: So there have been some interesting findings in this process. I feel like Jones was most involved with the government in San Francisco, and the government was most involved with Jones in Guyana. But throughout all of that, especially on a national level, there's a lot of disdain and not a lot of compassion. And I feel like maybe if they cared more, and if they treated them like people more, something could have been done sooner if they weren't so quick to dismiss them. But then again, if they weren't so quick to dismiss them, none of it might have even happened. I think it's not right to speculate how it could have been prevented in the past, but I think maybe we could prevent it in the future by taking care of our citizens.